You're an editor. We know you spend most of the month in a dark cave. So just once a month, get yourself out of the dark cave, away from the solitude, and be with other editors at the Editor's Lounge at Alpha Dogs. Editorslounge.com. When we last left our heroes, they were locked into a terribly important discussion. Let's drop in on them again as they plot the future. Now from the Top Dogs Kennel in beautiful downtown Burbank, it's the Terrence and Philip Show. Well, thank you, Gary, and it's time for another Terrence and Philip Show. I'm Philip Hodgetts. And I'm Terrence Curran. And it might be time to talk NAB 2015, since it's just over. Yawn. It wasn't one of the most exciting (laughs) NABs ever, I guess. And sometimes I'm actually very thankful for that. It's nice to have a period of consolidation, a period where we can actually learn how to use the tools that are released, get them into our hands in reasonable time and practice with them and get workflows that everyone knows that work and don't have to be changed every time you start again like a snowflake. Well, yeah, that would be nice, except that that's never existed in the real world anyways, it seems like. You know, every well, show, every show, <laughs> yeah. every single show you get, you know, you get the workflow down and, you, and by the end of the series, you go, OK, we've got a really smooth operating machine. Next series comes up and they brought a different camera or something and, it, and the entire thing starts all over. So it's the uh, snowflake workflows thing, you know. Well, I should be thankful that feature films and Final Cut Pro 10 and feature films and Premiere Pro have only very limited workflow options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That makes your life easier, yeah. That makes my life easier. It makes their life easier. And it's mm-hmm. interesting to see how you know the editing editorial team from Focus and the directorial team have gone together off to another movie that's being shot now. The assistant editor and another assistant is doing, working uh, – the new assistant is working on another feature film on Final Cut 10. There's yet another uh, feature at a, at a studio going in Final Cut 10 that's not associated with either of those. Mm-hmm. So there is this activity. There's other features that are working in Premiere Pro. Uh, but I'll bet the basic workflow is essentially the same thing they've always done. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, well, that's it's the, the amazing features don't change that much. It's essentially the same feature, and, and a lot of problems associated with the workflow are simply that, that the studios want things that are no longer relevant, like EDLs. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. These sort of deliverables are things that really don't have to be there for the modern workflow, but they have to be there as part of being part of a studio workflow. Right. Lucky for you. Well, lucky for, for Reiner. In that case, EDLX <laughs> was part of the tool set. Aside on that, what's interesting is that one of the tools that they featured in all of the post-publicity from us mm-hmm. is Sync and Link 10. Okay. The irony is that Focus itself didn't use Sync and Link very much. They were using LightIron for their daily, so LightIron were doing the syncing and doing that daily work. The reason I think that Sync and Link has got the publicity since then is what was realized during Focus is that they can do all of that in-house with Final Cut Pro 10, with Sync and Link, and with mm-hmm. ShotNotes 10, and suddenly all the metadata is in the project, all the metadata, all the clips are synced up. Um, if you want proxies to work with, well, of course, Final Cut can generate the proxies in the background well, but, to but a then, central location. But, but then what is LightIron going to do? Well, as, as uh, Michael <laughs> Shioni has often pointed out, he, he's very aware that the business that they're currently in probably won't exist in five years. He, he did a whole thing just, what, two or th- two years ago or so on that, and we're seeing the, the evol- evolution of that now. And, and I mean, he sold the company to I was gonna Technicolor, say, so, good, you know. <laughs> good thing, he, yeah, Panas- Panavision. Pan- Panavision, sorry. Good thing he sold. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's a smart move. If you, if, yeah, if you, if you know you've got a t- limited time. If you know that your business that you're in has got a limited future mm-hmm. and somebody's prepared to pay you money to buy a business that has a limited future, that's the I'm time happy to, sell. to cash the check. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> See ya. I'm not sure that it's uh, the wisest move on the purchaser's side, but 
Yeah, well, it's Panavision. What do you want? I don't know the company particularly well, but yeah, that's another company is grasping for straws. You know, they well, made yeah. they made their entire business model it was on you know you couldn't buy a Panavision camera; you can only rent them. Well, if nobody's shooting with Panavision cameras, uh, you know, yeah. it's a little tough. So yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing. So overall, NAB, what did I find that uh, I thought was interesting? Um, Cinedec got a lot of attention because you can do inserts into yep. uh, QuickTime movies, but we'd already seen that at the February editors lounge. So it's hardly exciting and new. Exactly. Um, you know, Blackmagic has a million products. Well, okay, that's you know there wasn't anything new, stunningly new. You know, they shrunk one down to the point where there's a a decent competitor for GoPros now that'll be yes, less, yeah, less compressed. Yeah, cinematic quality and uh, yeah. Yeah, but. that'll be nice. It'll make my life easier color correcting reality shows. There's uh, you know, a lot of little workflow things like what you were demoing yeah, which yeah. is a big workflow thing, but it's in a small area. There was drones everywhere. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my god. I made that call <laughs> back in 2011 uh, 2012 when I was doing the Solar Odyssey thing and playing with the drone. Yes, I just yeah, became so it became so obvious that software will catch up with this. Yes. And this what was it the Solo drone? Yes. It's got built-in program programmed con- uh, moves. behaviors like you know yeah. swing around yeah. or zoom back up at you know the the common drone sort of moves that you want to make are just software program now. Yeah, it's like having a motion camera. Yeah. yeah a motion capture camera, you know the old yeah. uh, you Follow know. Follow me. So it's yeah. like it's just a software button. Yeah. And then, okay, let's do it again. Okay, let's do it again. You get the same move over and over and over. That's fantastic. It was so obvious that that was the way it was going to go that I thought, I could be a leader in this field or the software will just make the next year and a half of hard one knowledge obsolete in two years' time. So, yeah. no. Here we metadata. are. Metadata. Metadata. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as things are shaking out, you would have had to get a pilot's license, as it turns out, you know, under the although, new FAA although rules. They, they've softened on a lot of those rules now. Well, this is going to be this is going to be interesting to see how yeah. that's right. But at any rate, I you know it was like yes. a couple years. Ago. I mean, yes, you the first man, mention I knew of the drones was Solar Odyssey with your thing, and then NAB right after that there were there was like a little section of drones, and I went in and I was like, oh my god, I you know I saw all the potential in the danger yep. and the controversy that was going to um, come around this stuff, and that was two years ago, I think. And, about right, yeah. you know, and now Maybe this year. Yeah. My God, every single hall had a whole bunch of drone booths in it. I was like, where are all these guys coming from? They're, you know, I mean, I certainly, I, every model uh, airplane manufacturer is probably making drones now because they see the market there, but there's more companies than that that are now selling drones. So I don't know who else is doing it. And it's all about the software. No, okay. Um, that's the differentiation between the drones. I mean, anyone can put together motors, blades. That's it's true. The, it's the electronics that control that, and then the software in turn that controls the electronics that matches the GPS and the uh, and all of that. That's what makes the difference between the drones that I was practicing on in 2012 yeah. and what we have now, where we have a, the, all of the pan and tilt heads stabilized. And of course, that technology has now come back to handheld. Yeah. So the Movi, I think it is, isn't it, that does that, takes yes. the, yes. the um, pan tilt stabilization out of the helicopter and puts it into the into a handheld device. It can have two operators, one carrying and one manipulating the camera. Yeah, that was that one is pretty cool. Yeah. But, you know, we're getting to the point where you're not going to need the handheld because the drones are becoming so efficient and so easy to use that there's going to be a noise run. factor that comes into play for a while yet. Yeah, though I think even with handheld, you know, you've got so much noise going on that that stuff's generally ADR'd afterwards. If, yeah, you know, at least in features. So yeah, anywhere. I know. I, I, one of the shows that we we try and catch is um, Grand Designs, and there's there is an Australian version of it as well. One shot that they have has to be a drone. It finished one of the um, 
programs, starts inside tracking towards the door. The camera's moving backwards as he walks towards the door. It comes out through the door outside and then flies up two or 300 feet so you see the entire property. There's oh, yeah. no other way to get yeah, that that's, shot. That's but, what it is then, yeah. But apparently the way to do that is you actually have somebody holding the drone okay. while it's fly while it's inside, so it's not it's got the stability, move it out through the door, let it go and run like hell to get out of the shot. <laughs> well, and there's the band, and of course their name escapes me now, that makes the really cool music videos uh, yeah, with uh, it, you know, the very complex setups. <laughs> okay, go. Okay, go. That's it. Yes. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they did the one and, it, and, you know, they start there on these little scooter things and they're inside of, the ha- of a building and then they go outside and then the shots, you know, following them out front, you figure, okay, it's a handheld or a dolly. But then it starts going up and, you know, and, and it follows all these intricate moves coming up. And then at the very end, it just keeps going up and up and up and up, revealing, you know, how wide and how many people are involved in this big final shot, you know, that's all choreographed. And of course, in one take, that was a drone. Yeah. You know, but I remember watching it. Until about yeah, until about I don't know, probably a third of the way in, I could I didn't know that it was a drone yet. I was going, wow, that's yeah. a really interesting concept, you know. Because there was a movie called House. It was a horror movie back in the I believe it was the late eighties. Um, and their opening shot was phenomenal because they follow this guy out, you know, the the star from William Katz, I think was the star. They follow him walking out of the front of the house and out front, and then the camera just kind of goes up and it goes way up in the sky. And I'm like, how in the heck did they do that? And what they did is they had a steady cam operator leading him out, uh-huh. and he steps onto a uh, hoist, basically, and that goes up, you know, a crane, and that lifted the steady cam operator up. So. It was this beautiful, smooth, and it's a, when I'm watching this video, I was thinking maybe they did the same kind of thing until it keeps going and going and going, and you go, okay, well, we're past the crane point now. So, anyways, that's all on a side. So the drones are uh, taking over in a big way. Um, FAA is having their issues. You know, the the current uh, rules are as of two months ago that I know of, you have to have a pilot's license. You have to have two people, so the pilot and uh, a spotter. Uh, you can't fly over people. You have to have a certain distance you have to have a flight plan which is the amazing part because you can't file a flight plan in a day it takes quite a while to get flight plans approved so you know all those kind of limitations make it difficult for just anybody to go out and do this now that's for commercial yeah okay but then the question becomes you know what makes commercial and there's a guy i guess who's got a lot of drone youtube on youtube yeah. he has a lot of drone videos and apparently the faa is going after him saying well you and make the, money the, off of them losing hand over fist in oh, fact they are? Their, whole, their whole ability to regulate the drone market is in question okay that's they good probably enough. don't have authority so then the next step is going to be when somebody uses one of these for something stupid. Yeah. You know. That will be another thing. I mean, the fact that people are starting to contemplate and use them inside churches during wedding ceremonies e, yeah. is just the most stupid thing right. to do. I mean, yes, the shot would be nice, but the risk is just not worth it. Right. And the average wedding videographer is not really putting into the same safety standards that would apply to a film shoot or a commercial shoot in Hollywood or any film production. Uh, Twilight Zone, the movie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, we have... Vic Morrow would have a... <laughs> it's, it's for no, not at all accidental. I think that the Blackmagic Micro Cinema camera is designed to fly and have remote control of the camera using the same protocol that are used to control remote control aircraft and vehicles. So yeah, that was so they're clearly very you know looking right at that market. And yeah. again, you want to put something more than a GoPro up there, but not really want to have the weight of you know a Red Dragon or something, right? Or an Alexa. Then you, this is a really excellent choice, and I think they're really smart to target that market. Yeah, I agree. And that and actually in 
they um, in the Airy booth, they had the small camera, the smaller what is it, a Mira? I don't know. The smaller, yeah. uh, they had that on a drone. I was just like, you got to be kidding. I guess it weighs about five pounds, but yeah, and they that's, can that's, fly. That has to be a serious drone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, when people talk about, you know, I from the beginning was saying, what if somebody straps a bomb on these people? Oh, yeah. they can't lift that weight. Well, they can now. Yeah. And, of course, uh, Blackmagic with Resolve have clearly every intention of making it a editorial competitor to Premiere Pro and to Media Composer. Yes, yeah. Well, if nothing else, it's nowhere near the point where you'd want to actually seriously sit down and offline a show in no. it. But uh, you could do spots in it easily, you know, commercials. Uh, but the other thing is that oh, gosh, it's what a finishing. What other, what other tool started off just on commercial spots when it wasn't really up to the uh, D- storage results. <laughs> well, I decided to go with Media Composer version one, really. Uh, yeah, but it because yeah. of the storage issues at the time. Yeah, yeah. So yes, but it's a Trojan horse. You get it into one market and people like it. Yeah, but it's well, I guess because for me, I'm looking at it from you know, it's a finishing tool. Yeah. Whereas Media Composer wasn't a finishing tool. Was editor, yeah. DS was the editor slash finishing tool, and they killed that. Um, well, Symphony, of course, always been your tool of choice. Well, yeah, because when the people are offlining in Media Composer, you've got 100 percent you know conform. I mean, you just immediately go yeah. right into doing that um, but you know Abbott has decided not to keep up the tool set with the time so that's a problem so Resolve is kind of becoming that you know finishing system now and by adding you know <laughs> one of the problems with using Resolve is you, when you're round tripping you have to go back you know there's when you go in you got to now double check and make sure everything is showing up in the right place and is all correct and did everything translate there's always some hinking around to get it just you right know. and then if you round trip back then you got to do all that again whereas if you've gone into Resolve and you don't ever have have to go back. I mean, that's your finishing. That's a much better answer, yeah, you know, yeah, for a workflow. People say, you know, well, we'll just finish and resolve. We'll do our offline in right. Media Composer. It like, doesn't matter. Yeah, you can do then, it in Media Composer, yeah. uh, Final Cut, or yeah. Premiere. It doesn't matter yeah. if you have. So for us, but, it's kind of nice because we can have one finishing platform that we're masters yeah. at and let – it doesn't matter who, where the people offline, where our clients offline. I can still see risks a little bit like the Trojan horse in Troy. Yeah. You know, if if Resolve starts to get that oh, little, yeah, oh, yeah. little snickly in, and so it's now I part agree. of the workflow and – you know, there are improvements in the tools, and I know they must have done a lot of work under the hood that doesn't count as features. Right. But I do have to say that if I had if I had 100 people involved in a project and only 80 new features for the year, I probably wouldn't put that at my top of my introductory talk right. on the subject because that's 0.8 of a feature per person per year mm-hmm. on average. Now, not everyone's engineer. Some of those are probably marketing and some of those are quality assurance, but even so... That's not a very efficient team, given given the size and the productivity of teams at Adobe and teams at Apple. Right. So, you know, hey, that's a very big software team. I mean, you just don't get efficiencies when you have that many people involved. Right. I remember him talking about it, and you were like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I'm sure the feature set and the improvements are great. I'm just – it's incremental. And so this year it's going to be a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Then next year it's going to be some of those areas that say, well, it's not suitable for offline yet. The media management in the bins right. is not there really yet and there are other features in the editorial workflow that are not as smooth as they are in other offline platforms or editorial focused platforms but it's only a matter of one or two more years and and that, and that, and that barrier is going to be good enough for maybe not for Terry Curran or maybe not for somebody doing a feature film but start to eat into a lot of these other markets where it's a free tool right <laughs> we've got to keep in mind that this very powerful finishing tool mm-hmm. this digital intermediate tool for your onset yeah. start become the Swiss army knife they've for only got to fill in a few more you know buildings between those uh, beachheads mm-hmm. and they have that full editorial workflow we have 
have a camera to output in an entirely black magic workflow. Yeah, but again, it's to get to the point where, say, a media composer or premiere or Final Cut Ten are now. There's a you know there's a lot to fine tuning a nonlinear editing experience there that is. you know yeah. the team at Apple had you know all those years in you know Final Cut before to bring that information forward and continue with. Premiere's been at it for a long time before people are going, oh, you know what? Now it's really workable. And obviously, media composers have been at it for a long time too. I think, I mean, I'm not a programmer and I don't play one on TV, but I think from that programming standpoint, it's very complex when you start getting into all those layers of, you know, something simple like a trim. Oh, and, you know. and as soon as you want to support more than one platform, you, yes. you make sure yes. then you yeah. have to do it all yourself. Yes. This is why Final Cut 10. Dot o could be developed in pretty quick, smart time. That's true, yeah. You don't have to cross Because if you, if you cross-correlate when rumors have it that a whole team of people were laid off in, say, February 2010, I think from memory, <laughs> and we saw a preview in February 2011 and then released in June 2011 of, a, of an initial release, so certainly, you know, right. incomplete, but, mm-hmm. you know, no software's ever finished. And so the reason that, that that's possible is that you're building on a lot of existing foundational elements in the operating system itself and right. frameworks and... Or, and even though they had to roll a lot of their own, AV Foundation wasn't mature, so they were mostly rolling their own down to core video, core um, animation and other things. They have a single platform development has a lot of be- of advantages yeah. simply because you've got all of these frameworks that are platform-specific that you can use to get very rapid development. Where as, soon well, as, you, as soon as you want to do two, two platforms, don't matter whether it's even Linux and OS X, which are you know, relatively closely associated, mm-hmm. you're still pretty much rolling your own for everything because you can no longer rely on anything that might be built into Linux and certainly can't rely on anything that's built into, into OS X and you can't rely on anything that might be built into Windows. So, well, there's also the experience uh, factor too. You know, the guys who were there already, you know, it's it, for example, before the show, Philip and I were talking about Greg's developing a current version of software and he was able to take an entire package that translates time codes and basically makes just, us think up. Just recognizes them even. <laughs> yeah, and, and because he did that years ago, he already had that, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're sitting there, I don't know, if you're the guy programming the trim modes or something and you did it before in the old Final Cut 7, you know all the all the bugs to watch for, in other words, or all the things that might that Although may I, have to learn. I do believe it's a completely different team. Completely different, yeah. wow. Yeah. But, well, because Steve of product, is involved. Outside and, of product management, the engineering, okay. the engineering team, I believe, was completely replaced. So at least from the product management standpoint, they're going to yeah. know, okay, here's where... Yeah, uh, and, and this is what I've learned over the well, years. Well, of course, you know, Steve has an editorial background. He knows right, exactly. what a true mode is. He knows yeah. how it should work. And, <laughs> right. And, and, you know, the architect, designer, lead designer, I think it's an official title, mm-hmm. who, whom I met for the first time this week, you know, they, they have to... They have, she has an editorial background. She's an editor um, before she worked in that role at Apple. So we... Right. You know, people have know how a trim tool should work mm-hmm. or know the result they want a trim tool to give them. Right. The way it might work may end up being different because you, you look at the result you want rather than how it's worked in other tools in the past. We jokingly call this internally as a, a Gavin question. A Gavin question? Yeah, I'm sure Gavin Banks doesn't listen to this podcast, but he was a, one of my best employees back in Australia. But he did have a tendency to ask a very specific question that really didn't give you the answer that he was asking. He really had to search behind the questions. Well, like I was using as an example, how does a trim tool work? Well, here's how a dynamic trim tool works in, in Media Composer. Mm-hmm. And not how do I build something exactly like that isn't the question. Patents and other issues that might come into it is how do I right. get the same fluidity of edit outcome? Right, okay. What if, and so, so the, the Gavin question is how do I make a, tr- a dynamic trim tool 
The bigger question is how do I create a fluid, trimming, edit experience? And so if you ask one question, you get a different answer to what you would ask if you ask the broader question. Okay. So he would ask the specific question. He would ask the very specific question. And sometimes we find customers are asking that or even one of Greg or I will ask a question like that. And the other is then tasked with bringing us back to say, well, what are you really trying to do? Mm -hmm. What's the outcome you want? Not how do you get there via the path you've decided to choose? Right. That's a, that's a good point because it gives you other options for a path to get there, which may be better. Yes. If, if, even if you've been down Sepulveda every other time in, in your, in your <laughs> yeah, life, that's right. you, know, you should probably check out the freeway occasionally. It might be better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so back to NAB. Let's see. What else is uh, exciting up there? I uh, went to the big Abbott event. Um, you know, Media Composer Free. Hey, yes, yeah. so Abbott has won the race to the bottom. Excellent. I don't know hey, that yay. that's a great thing, but yes. Yes, you can have our stuff free too. So, uh. Not a stupid move overall in, in theory, but I think the limitations that they've imposed on Media Composer is not going to make it as attractive. I mean, sorry, on Media Composer Free mm-hmm. is not going to make it as attractive as it could be. My other concern is that it's just about five years too late. Yeah, that's what I would say. If you wanted to capture that market, that was that was years ago to do that. Um, but they didn't have the infrastructure to do it no, the way and, they're trying to do no, it now. No. And it's a part of a wider move within the company. And overall, the strategy seems to be working and seems to suit the market that they've, they've primarily focused on. And although there's been announcements, you know, they're going to go after the, this $2 billion opportunity that we're not covering because we've been the media enterprise company. Yeah. That we've let Adobe and Apple go after and, and, you know, Sony Vegas and a whole bunch of other Anadius. There's mm-hmm. lots of tools out there. Right. I think they've already conceded that market to that audience, those other apps, because oh, they yeah. weren't they weren't there when this surge happened, when this growth happened. They've been very happy to focus on their core market, the, the media enterprise, which is very Hollywood, mm-hmm. film and television-centric, absolutely the business that Avid grew up into, the business that Avid services so very well. But that business has ceased to become the majority, if not all, of the production industry, that or similar, mm-hmm. to this is now a very nice quite big niche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, they kind of own that niche, but yes. but that's not going to continue. And there's no and there's no issue with owning a niche because you can be very profitable owning a niche in translating say from 10 to 7 and 7 to 10. Mm-hmm. You can be very profitable out of that, but um, that niche is eventually going to go away. You must realize that at some point in time there will be other tools that will do that or the demand for that will go away. Yeah, and you're not trying to support a company the size of Avid either. <laughs> no, not trying to support a company the size of Avid. There's a difference in profitability. So, yes. so yeah, I don't know. Long term, I think right now Avid's in a pretty reasonable position again. We can exhale and take in another deep breath for the next round. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, long term, I'm, I'm just not confident that we'll see quite the same brand dominance in the film and television industry mm-hmm. in 10 years that we see now. No, I would say even in a couple of years, the pre-NAB Editors Lounge panel, yeah. you, you were there, when the, you know we, every year we take the poll, sort of raise yeah. of hands poll about you know who's, who's editing on what system. And for the first time ever, I mean, every year we, you say Premiere Pro, it's either no hands or maybe one. This year... It was insane. It was like 15 hands went up, and then two editors on the panel were saying they'd rather they prefer to edit with Premiere Pro if it had project sharing like Avid does. Uh, like, mm, yes, and and <laughs> I think at that point somebody mentioned into my ear, "Wait till NAB." Yeah, yes, and, yes. Uh, and the pre-NAB announcement was effectively that Adobe Anywhere becomes a local sits on top of your SAN on a local area network with a local metadata server. So there's no need for the Mercury streaming engine. There's no 
need for mm-hmm. you know four blade servers per client or whatever the specific requirements were quite heavy to service that, and there's no need to depend on unreliable public or semi-public or expensive non-public bandwidth. Mm-hmm. You got it all at the metadata sharing. I mean, I think Adobe's in a very strong position to take a lot of the the market that Final Cut Pro six, seven, five serves so very well. People yeah. who've like myself, who've grown up in a not broadcast, not film industry, but a production industry that services education, corporate markets, a little bit of commercial. And those people, are. it's an easy transition to Premiere Pro because it's the same sort of general principles. Yes. Um, there's no mind shift has to happen. They've put the performance in there. The interface has been modernized. It's a nice modern app. They've put the yeah. sort of... Mask, they put the most important tools out of After Effects back into the editing interface. They put some important color correction grading tools out of it. For the sort of business that I ran in Australia, for the sort of business that people like, you know, Kerry Dismore runs right. now, you know, Rob Bernholtz, having the suite of tools makes yeah. Premiere Pro their obvious NLE of choice. You know, if you move into After Effects and if you move into Audition. Well, and promo departments. Promo departments. It's ideal yeah. for promo departments. And of course, you know, um, our friend Greg's and my mutual friend in Australia. In Newcastle, out of the Square Medium, um, you know, they produce video, they do commercials, they do print, they do web publishing, they do a bit of everything. And the Adobe Suite for Teams has every one of those apps sitting there to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm you know I'm a happy paid paying customer of Creative Cloud because I use yeah, same here. I, I use Creative Cloud apps to make me money as opposed to right. You know, we have Premiere Pros because we support Premiere Pro in an Audition and After Effects with their XML translations. But I don't personally use Premiere Pro, but I use Photoshop, I use Illustrator, I'm falling in love with Adobe Muse for websites. And you see the new Lumberjack website in a week or two, lumberjacksystem.com, and that will be a, a Muse website. It just works like desktop publishing. Wow. It's the reason that people used Flash mm-hmm. in the past, and you know, it's, so it's not surprising that Adobe have been able to leverage all the design tools that ultimately output to Flash same sort of design tools that now just output to you know JavaScript, CSS, and HTML combination all in the background. Nice. It's it's. it's yeah, I haven't played with it yet. Oh. I guess I, sh- I need to uh, jump on that now. Yep, and and I think anywhere is a particularly the new you know anywhere as long as it's just local, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. However, <laughs> yeah. you want to put that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 it's anywhere, if, everywhere. I don't know. I keep mixing anywhere them up. as long as it's right here. Yeah, the, the exactly. yeah. I think the in-house version of anywhere starts to really strike directly at. A, at Avid's heart, because mm-hmm. the one the one thing that everyone says is core to Avid's uniqueness project sharing, project sharing exactly. Yeah. So if you can start to get a, a reasonable project sharing going in an environment that's comfortable people for people who've worked with Media Composer and also have transla- transitioned from Final Cut Seven, mm-hmm. and as an aside. Whatever you do, transition from Final Cut 7. Yeah. This, that well, you're still using a 32-bit app in 2015 means you should really be taken out and flogged or somebody who's determining your workflow should be taken out and flogged. With the was, exceptions of people who can completely control their workflow and work only with ProRes and without H, and not too much HD, then you're fine. You it was an interesting because it was an inverse uh, this year at the yeah. Airs Lounge because traditionally there's been plenty of Final Cut 7 hands going up and there were a lot less this year. It would be interesting to actually should go to the videos and check them out online and check like last year's and this year's and see. I wonder if the amount of increase in uh, uh, Premiere editors is equivalent to the amount of decrease in Final Cut 7 yeah. editors. That would be... I would say that's probably very, very likely. I don't think we're seeing a big transition away from Media Composer by any means. And, and no, not yet. The honest thing is the fact that Focus or Gone Girl were news in the editorial space is simply because they weren't Media Composer. Mm-hmm. Every other movie that was released in, studio, in the studios that year were Media Composer by default. Right. So... 
publicity happens on these things simply because they are the anomalies, the outliers, yeah. the outliers. And yeah. you know, we're not seeing we're not seeing fifty movies being done in Premiere Pro or sixty five movies being done in Final Cut Pro Ten. Not this year, not next year. <laughs> and and if we're rounding out the the three A companies. I think Final Cut Pro Ten is really focused at that next generation of users coming up. Right. You know, the fact that iMovie that ships free with every Macintosh is a stripped down version of Final Cut Pro Ten now mm-hmm. means it's an incredibly easy transition for anyone who outgrows right. that, who wants to be a little bit more serious. Combine that with what I've been talking about since well before the turn of the century, that video has become another sort of literacy. Literacy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's just everybody to some degree, will use video production as part of their normal daily life. You know, we make a video for the family, mm-hmm. make a, a video presentation. And again, you know, Adobe have some nice tools in that space as well for easy access visual presentations on iOS. But I think Final Cut 10 is very well poised. You know, we've only got the one sales data point from last NAB at 1 million. Mm-hmm. So, million units sold, which means it's probably installed, it could be installed on anything up to 5 million computers because of the way the, the licensing works. Well, Final Cut Pro Ten has stayed top of the sales in the app stores, as in the numbers sold, pretty much all through the last year. In the absence of any official announcement and, and because I can rely on that one public figure, and the, then I think that's probably a lot more than one million units sold. Mm-hmm. You know, my cousin, my cousin has a copy of it. He's not, in, he's not a professional, video professional. He just produces video for himself. Largely, and his and his friends. So why did he why did he drop three hundred bucks on that instead of just using iMovie? Apparently, he wanted more control. Hmm. He's you know iMovie was a bit too simple for him. He wanted more control. He's a bit of you know he's a little bit geeky inclined. It was one oh, of okay. one of the few in my family that actually had any understanding of what I did. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> so if you want a team that really cares about your project, no matter how big or small, and you want to make your project look and sound better. Come on and check out alphadogs.tv. But it's so so okay. So, so that, the, that's you know, all of these companies. But those, are really we, we knew all these things. Work. We yeah. knew these things before. So yeah. so NAB. What else? Come on, give me something uh, exciting. I didn't. You know. No, I don't think there was anything super exciting from my perspective. I, yeah. I see a continued emphasis, rise in emphasis on the value of metadata. So yay. Mm. <laughs> I, the only the highest point for me, and that's not doesn't mean much because it was already an, uh, a technology we talked about last year, was the high dynamic range yes, that Dolby yeah. is pushing. This year at the Dolby booth, they had Vizio TVs playing HDR that was streaming over Vudu and their Warner Brothers movies. And Vudu had started that Saturday streaming uh-huh. HDR version of Warner Brothers movies, fifteen megabits, and. What okay. was really interesting out of this is, you know, you always have to look for the subtext. The subtext is that uh, Voodoo said they will drop resolution. You know, like if your bandwidth goes down, uh-huh. they'll drop resolution before they'll drop the HDR. Of course. Because yeah. they what they find in their metrics is that, guess what? People respond to the HDR, not perception, resolution. <laughs> perception of sharpness has always been about contrast more than it has been about resolution. I mean, yes. the perception of sharpness and actual measured resolution, and these are not the same thing. So now, if we could focus on doing high dynamic range 1080 in the existing infrastructures we have instead of let's spend billions of dollars over the planet building infrastructure for 4K so that people at home cannot see any difference. Hmm. 
I but just, you know which is going to happen, don't you? No, nah, I don't. I don't <laughs> think four games is going to happen like that. I don't think it's going to happen because it doesn't matter. You know, there there are outliers now going. Oh yeah, we want our master in four K. But the reality is, do you think NBC, ABC, CBS, Discovery, all these people are going to rip out everything and replace it all with four K? so that they can charge nothing more to the client at home who can't see the difference anyway. Over 50% of television now on HD TVs is being watched in standard def. They don't – and that's a huge difference, visible difference, right? Yeah. yeah. The difference between 1080 and 4K at home, you know, you have to get so close to a giant screen TV to even begin to see it, and it's not a selling point. It's not a, oh, my God, that's so different, I'll pay you more for the bandwidth yeah. to see it. You know, it's not going to happen. So who's going to pay for it? At the distance that I sit watching our – I think it's a 32-inch. It's not a very big TV. Uh-huh. I can see a difference between SD and 720, but it's not dramatic. So there you go. And 1080, 720, who cares? Right. Because I, at the distance that I sit, I cannot see the difference. Well, that, yeah, exactly. On that set. Now, if I had a 60-inch set, but who wants – in our apartment, a 60-inch set would be really inappropriate. And, and even Sony, the guys who are pushing 4K harder than anybody else, admits that if you have a 65-inch TV, you have to be closer than six feet to see the difference with 4K. Think about that. Yeah. 65 inches is really big. Yeah. Six feet is really close. close yeah. <laughs> so it's not how people are going to watch. So, you know, a few crazy sports fans who want to have a giant screen TV shoved in their face maybe will buy it. That's not going to pay for all the infrastructure. So it, this is a particularly sore spot for me because, you know. <laughs> You'll be paying for the infrastructure yeah, if it ends up. I, you have I, to. <laughs> am, I am expected to pay for, you know, uh, throwing out my scopes and buying new scopes at $17,000 a piece so I can monitor 4K. Buy you know, $30,000 and up 4K reference monitors and, and four times the bandwidth, four times the storage, right. et cetera, et cetera. You know, you just go through it four times the processing power. I mean, everything takes four times more. And actually, more than that, because if you want to be honest, the judder factor, which is when you pan a camera at a slower frame rate, you know, like a 24 frame camera, and you just pan it yeah. too fast, all of a sudden it looks like frames are being repeated. They call that judder, okay? Yeah. So, one of the things, you know, professional filmmakers do is they know not to pan too fast, you know, especially past a picket fence or something like that. Okay, you learn to do that, but most people don't. And so, at 30 frames HD, you can get away with panning fast. Sports works fine, etc. 60 frames, even better. That's why it's 720p 60 for sports is better than 1080 uh, 1080 30 but what they found is the bigger the screen the higher the resolution of the screen the more pronounced jetter is so now you have to get to higher frame rates yeah so in testing you have what they found is to get rid of jetter in 4k you have to get to 60 frames so we're not really talking four <laughs> times as much we're talking eight times as much storage yeah, and yeah. eight times as much bandwidth etc etc it's getting better it just just keeps getting better exactly <laughs> and we all know that we're not going to get four times the bandwidth coming into our homes in the near future, at least not in the United States. So it's kind of a joke. Um, I was on a panel at, and this is another reason I don't think it's going to happen. I was on a panel about 4K at the Abbott event, and uh, one of the other uh, guys on the panel was from the BBC. And he said, one of the things with the BBC is because it's a publicly owned company, they have to do use cases. They have to prove that the public wants this technology before they actually go full bore for it, which is why they never did 3D because they did all this testing with the public and it was like, mm, they, don't really, they don't really want it in the long run, right? Well, they're going through that testing now with 4K and it's not looking good. So, you know, when you get yeah, down yeah, to it, it's yeah. like, who wants to invest the money? Comcast, the, the uh, 
Michael Cavanaugh at Keycode tweeted that, you know, he had talked to the head of Comcast who was saying, we're more interested in high dynamic range than we are in 4K because that's what the consumer at home can see. We'll see them, yeah. Exactly. So if you're talking about the people who actually provide the content to the public aren't buying into the scam and the public's not going to buy into the scam, then who is? So, you know, it's, I, I ran into this and anybody was saying, yeah, I know, it, it doesn't make any sense, but it's kind of a foregone conclusion. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean – who is a foregone conclusion to? And again, we want to distinguish between 4K in the home, which I think I agree with you completely. is a known starter. Mm-hmm. No, no interest in it at all. Could end up with a 4K set if it was exactly the same price as the 1080 set when I next yeah, buy the next one, one you buy. But, yeah. you, but you still won't be getting 4K okay. into the house. No, nope. <laughs> no. So. Most of what we watch is still effectively standard def yeah. or something less than HD resolutions. Mm-hmm. But for production, I see quite a lot of advantages in 4K. Oh, certainly. Well, yeah. or 8K or whatever. Yeah, you yeah, know, the 8K yeah. cameras, they're already starting to ramp. Yeah. Out so that because you're starting with a larger format and you can do that with it, but for the entire post workflow and then the delivery home, forget about it. No. And in theaters, you know the other the other thing is that some people are going, oh yeah, but you know 4K it works in a theater because they have a big screen, even though you still you have to be sitting in like the first yeah, ten yeah. rows for that to work. So that doesn't apply. But forget that, forget that part. Here's the big thing: all of these theaters that went digital because they got forced there by 3D. You know they didn't want to. They put off doing the transfer from film. So they did it. They've just sunk all this money into all these 2K projectors. They're going to throw them out and buy 4K projectors? I don't think so. And the biggest advantage of going digital is you lose the, the gate weave. So the effective yes. resolution yeah, from, it's already better. It's, yes. it's already better because yeah. you don't have this overlaying and blurring of the, of the image wave successive frames. Yes. And then if you throw – I don't know if you've seen these laser projectors. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's like HDR. I mean it's just insane. One of the um, – since I've, you know, I'm really into the HDR right now. <laughs> One of the things I learned is that the reason that uh, you know our, our TVs right now, which are set for the white point at 100 nits, yeah. uh, in a theater, which are set for the white point at 48 nits, and the reason Dark that room, yeah. they're set so low is because that was the speed versus brightness they found where you didn't burn the film up. You know, because if it if the film went through any slower, you'd have to lower the light yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. You know, so once they set on, hey, here's 24 frames. This is what we're going to run the film at. We can only put this much light in, or we'll burn it up. Okay, that's why it's not. You know, they're not as bright as they could be in the theater. Yeah. We've grown used to that. That's what we're used to watching. So when they made TVs, they're basically twice as bright as what you see in a theater, but they still can be so much more. Well, with the laser projectors now, the digital laser projectors, it's like, oh my god, they can go really bright and Guess what? Everything pops. Yeah. You know? yeah. That gleam off of you know the windshield of the car really sparkles like it does in real life. So all of a sudden, things start coming alive. And when you do that, chroma pops out more. Everything mm. just kind of rides along with it. So anyways, uh, I'll get off my band, <laughs> bandstand here. But HDR, if we gave 1080 HDR to the people at home right now, they would be so blown away. And we could do that within our existing infrastructure for the most part. Versus 4K, which, you know, I, I can't tell you. I don't know one person outside of this industry that has ever said to me, you know what I really want is more resolution on my TV at home. They just don't ask me for that. I I'm met, not hearing that. I haven't even met anyone in the family who doesn't say, I'd really like a lot less compression on that signal on my HD set. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, when the picture breaks up, they do. Uh, <laughs> watching a lot of lot more broadcast television when I was in Australia recently. Than, oh, isn't it horrible? And there was there were definitely some of the some of the channels were very heavily compressed. Yes, to the point that was distracting for me, but nobody else in the family seemed to notice. Exactly. But you know what? In four K, those the macro blocks uh, have much sharper, sharper edges. <laughs> I saw you post or tweet that, or somebody tweeted it, <laughs> the, quoting you. <laughs> 
So oh, NAB good. was not entirely a wash. I mean, it's, it was, as always, a great social yes. event. I mean, as I've long said, NAB is two days too long and four nights too short. Yeah, yeah. So, so absolutely. If you'd spread the parties over a few more nights so that I could, you know... Get to all of them. Yes. Get to all of them, or at least sort of a couple more. I mean, this is the second year I've missed the media motion ball on the Monday night. Uh, because Final Cut Pro Ten related stuff gatherings have been going on instead. So we, in fact, this year we co-sponsored Final Cut Ten Guru Gathering. Oh, cool! Yeah, and it was it was a nice, relaxed, no no presentations gathering, and so mm-hmm. we. It was a good evening. I think people like that better. Yes. It was an opportunity for the people who are to some degree still pioneering Final Cut Pro 10 workflows or people who have put their head out in public and say, hey, I like Final Cut Pro 10. It works for me. Mm-hmm. It was an opportunity for those people to see each other, share war stories. And uh, and we had a couple of people from you know the relevant companies that were there to, to chat informally. Mm-hmm. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know the kind of meeting you're talking about. Yeah. That's the good part uh, for me about NAB is, you know, meeting with those people. and Somebody suggested we should have had name tags. And I thought, mm, you know, there's a lot of people that came there that Probably were, happy to don't wanna... were happy to introduce themselves to people yeah. and, identif- and identify themselves uh, by their roles. But I feel that if we put name tags on people, that would perhaps unfairly push focus onto those people away from – you know, and it's always it is always great to talk to the people who make the software that yes. that you appreciate and that you use and yeah, and, and having promote, an ear of those know, guys it helps tremendously. It's great and it's an opportunity, but at the same time, it's not. I think the organisers' place to sort of put arrows on people and name tags to say, "Hey, these are people you need to hit up." It's up to those people to to introduce themselves appropriately. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we're going to have name tags. Yeah. <laughs> if, if we do it again <laughs> so so for you it sounds like it, well of course you're also presenting the software part but we'll hold that out yeah but for you it's primarily about the networking connections and yeah, stuff yeah because it is for me that's, and Adobe still invites me to their press, press cocktail lounge yeah. cocktail event which I appreciate and, and we were again, at the Black Magic uh, Black Magic event. Event. yeah, yeah. Um, it's, but it's I, you know I think the reason that it's lost all the excitement is because you know about everything ahead of time yeah you yes know? it's not the announcements are not that's held for that last minute because mm-hmm. if you if everybody holds them for the last minute then there's no cut through so everyone tries to stage at Adobe usually announce their what they'll be previewing at NAB you know Wednesday or Thursday before NAB mm-hmm. Ditto IBC pre-brief people ahead of time you know Apple are doing their briefings on the the sort of Sunday Monday around NAB so ahead of their release or just after their release, depending on how the cycle goes. Mm-hmm. It's really about the socializing. It is. Uh, and, and surviving. And surviving. Well, that's yeah. a big part. Uh, How'd you like one. the death storm? Yeah, that was pretty awesome. I, <laughs> I wish I had all my good cameras with me. Right? Uh, same here, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I went with my phone, I'm trying to get a camera. I couldn't yeah. really reproduce. You I know. thought, you know, I know the capabilities of the iPhone, and it just under these conditions isn't going to produce the optimal right. result. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. That was, was really weird. Oh, but it's brought a couple of people down. Uh, oh, it did? There's a lot of nasties in that, in that dust, so I'm glad yeah. we ultimately did not walk from near the South Hall across to the Super Meet on Tuesday because that would have been a lot of yeah, what if that's what happened to Kevin Monaghan because he's Kevin Monaghan, West Plate. Oh, um, he uh, took it out? Yeah, oh, West was uh, taken out. Uh, it was. It's not been well since. Uh, I uh, yeah. I went. Uh, you know, walked out to go to dinner to get a cab to dinner, and I'm like, where'd the hotels go? Yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> well, it was pretty strip, weird. It was I, really weird. I couldn't see two two hotels down. It was the yeah. weirdest thing. Yeah, but you know, so that I'll remember that always. That's that'll be the uh, dust storm of 2015. That's the what, dust storm of 2015. <laughs> that, that super meet night, the last super meet in the in the Riviera. 
Oh, is that it? Oh, because they're tearing it down or something? Yeah, they're, they're expanding the convention center. Oh, okay. That's why it's been purchased by them. It's closing down in two or three weeks and then demolition by the end of summer. I guess they're going to build off the end of the North Hall into the car park and then use the Riviera, pro- Riviera property for car parking and maybe a presence on the Strip. Okay. Maybe some sort of convention. I don't know. I haven't seen the plans, but it's a convention center stuff. So the Super Meet really has brought down... Oh, you know, half a dozen hotels, <laughs> <laughs> Stardust, which everyone used to go to. It's the problem is inexpensive venues, right? Right, um, are gonna, are, they're going to be gone eventually. That are, suit, that are suitable for an event the size, you know, there's twelve, fourteen hundred people now in a super meet. Mm-hmm. So they've got to be able to cater. They've got to have a seating area. We've got to have like two areas interconnected. So the, the requirements are fairly significant. And ideally close to the convention centre. but That's hard to do, yeah. yeah. And, of course, this is the year we find the, the easy parking. There's actually parking right under the venue at the oh, Riviera. You don't even have to go to the car park. It's like, oh, great. We find the easy parking when this is the last time we'll ever use it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, us! Yes. <laughs> and, of course, I finished up with a little karaoke, but the Desert Air doesn't do a lot for one's voice. <laughs> oh yeah, oh but yeah. Com- but compared with the year earlier, it was a. I felt much happier that uh, that I, you'd improved in a year. I felt I'd improved somewhat in a year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And, and the, we had a lot of interest in the FCP Works demo room. A lot. I know, you know, Final Cut Pro Ten is still somewhat peripheral to the to the largely NAB centric crowd. But it was a you know quality presentations and mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of interest, particularly around the case studies. Because people want to hear how it's worked for other people, I guess. Yeah. That's well, the case. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, the, the, the NAB crowd, because it used to be, uh, well, the, you know, the computer stuff was all over in the, um, yeah. whatever that is. Sands. Sands, Sands yeah, yeah, the Sands, you know. Now it's the entire South Hall, basically, top and bottom floor. And those are crowded all the days. Yeah. Whereas the other halls, I mean, even on Monday, you can walk through the Center Hall and the North Hall, and, you know, it's, eh, around the camera booths, you know, maybe Panasonic, yeah. Sony, you get some but all that audio, you know, like the yeah. the broadcaster stuff that they're theoretically there for. I mean, you can only take so many connectors unless you're really a, like John Moore. Um, <laughs> you can only take so many. Oh, look, there's another new kind of connector for wiring that I don't care about. Um, you know, the, all that stuff is very sparsely attended. But yeah. it's to the last day, it's very packed in the South Hall. And uh, that makes it interesting to, you know, it just creates an energy level that's above and beyond everything else. What I didn't see this year was anything exciting or new in those small 10 by 10s around. No. The- well, other than the Cinedec recorder. But like yeah. I said, I'd already seen it, so it yeah. wasn't as – but there were other people who saw it, and they were blown away. It's, yeah. it's been some real – you know, because they didn't know about it at a time. So I think uh, that was an exciting one, and they could only get one of those back booths. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I did look around all those booths, and mm, I just mm. – it was not – there was nothing going, wow, look at me. Yeah, that was the main reason I went into the South Hall and spent any time. There, right. really. <laughs> that's pretty much that's what I do now. On the first day, I go straight to the back because the front's a madhouse. Jammed, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, do the back part. and uh, You know, there's multiple people doing um, basically looks like, you know, a Mac Pro tower yeah. that you put the trash can Mac into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brings the connectors out to the back. and kind of like, well, what's the point? I don't know. It was interesting. Monitor-wise, nothing super exciting. I mean... Uh, the HDR, like I said, is great, and that's the Dolby Vision. Sony had a 4K, you know, reference monitor that they also says does high dynamic range. But 
let's you know back to high dynamic range. Sorry about this. The sweet spot that we're trying to that Dolby says the sweet spot for watching is ten thousand nits being the white point. Dolby says they can get to four thousand nits right now. So I'm looking at the Sony OLED 4K monitor, and I was asking those guys, well, how high can you get with the HDR and a thousand nits? Because if we do any more than that, it'll burn up the OLEDs. <laughs> so okay. okay, so you know they're not, they're not there yet. So other, I mean, that was it. It was kind of like yeah. Okay, nothing really uh, – there's nothing that made me want to spend money except for some of the drones, I have to admit. Yeah. Some of those, I was kind of going, oh, that would be a fun toy. <laughs> I have to justify it. I know, that's exactly uh, – I'm, I'm like, going to use my GoPro, my GoPro uh, NAB discount this week. <laughs> uh, oh, you got it? Oh, okay. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm not – I don't think – I've got two GoPro – I do that every year. I get the GoPro discount and I buy a GoPro camera, so I have multiples and then I hardly ever use them. But you know, this year I would I'd spend the extra four hundred bucks and buy you know the Blackmagic camera just because I could get so much better quality in the same footprint. You know, well, except for my application. Um, which oh, that's is, true. You need it. Yeah, yes, there's yeah. the smaller. The, the I looked at the Blackmagic and thought, yeah, definitely would be higher quality. Yes, absolutely. No higher dynamic range. Higher dynamic range, which would suit the application yeah. nicely, but. It's just going to be that much more prominent. It's just going to be that much bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like, oh, really? How much bigger? <laughs> how much bigger is it then? I mean, it looked like it was only about what that size square. Uh, no, it's more like that size. Okay, uh, where I, which is about maybe two inches by two inches. Okay, so an inch and a half deep from memory. Sorry if I've got that wrong, guys. But yeah, but you look at you know I get so many of these shoots now. Now the standard to do a shoot, you know, in car shoot is you just stick three GoPro cameras in the yeah. front, and that's it. That's the coverage in the car. Let the talent go. And if you, and, you shoot know, three. 4K GoPros, you've got a nice shot selection. Well, yeah. <laughs> but the problem is the GoPro camera is not really – how do I do this uh, politically correct? It doesn't do a really good job of uh, handling, you know, changing light levels and whatnot, no, no. which is, you know, driving a car. Guess yeah, what's yeah, happening? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then the second part is the, the, oh, no, the no, codec I mean, okay. they use. It's so compressed that it, if the image doesn't look great, it's really hard to fix because there's not a oh, lot yeah. there to deal with. In that application, absolutely. The Blackmagic camera micro would yes. be um, absolutely a better choice. Yeah. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm probably gonna get the GoPros anyway. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think partly because I'm back to Australia in two weeks ah, okay. uh, to finish the job. Well, in fact, have a bigger picture for it now. Cool. Uh, we'll have to talk about that. I'm sure this is all. Uh, we'll have to be talking about off the show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Top secret stuff, you know. Well, and that's NAB 2015. I guess. A stabilizing one for a change. Yeah, stabilizing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> well, we saw it in, in greater resolution, <laughs> in higher dynamic range. See, I got it in there one more time. So if you're looking for tools to make your life easier working within Final Cut or Premiere for some of the tools or mixing and matching back and forth between different systems, make sure you go to intelligentassistance.com. And if you want to get your project finished well and Beautifully, come to Alpha Dogs, where you can get your sound and vision fine-tuned to perfection. Why, thank you. (laughs) Until next time, do something creative. Thanks for listening.